going to find Ezra 7. Like John said, um, we're going to do a bit of a recap on where we've been in the book of Ezra so far. It's a good chance to do that. We reach a bit of a turning point in the book. Um, if you're with us for the first time, or even if you've been dropping in or been here the last few weeks, um, Ezra is not a book that most of us know very well. We might not be familiar with where it comes in the Bible story. We might have struggled to track with it and um, uh, keep tabs on what's going on. So this week is a good chance to remind ourselves of the story so far before today Ezra himself enters the story. So we're in the Old Testament. We're about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. Uh, the Israelites have been living in the land of Israel. They were rescued from Egypt under Moses and they've enjoyed a long time in the land, being ruled by the likes of King David. But they continually turn away from God, and eventually they're punished. Other nations come in and conquer them. Their temples destroyed, the kings are dethroned, and they're literally carried off into exile. And they spend around 70 years in exile, away from their homeland. But in the book of Ezra, after those 70 years the new king of Persia, he says they can go back to the land. They can build a new temple. They can live there again. That's what we've seen in chapters 1 to 6, that return from exile. Uh, and so far, Ezra, it's really replayed the story of the Exodus. I wonder if you've noticed that. God does this all the time. When he saves people, he does it in an Exodus-shaped kind of way. So God's people were in captivity God took control of the heart of the king so they could leave the land, so they could go and build a house to worship him. They left with great riches to do it. And at the end of chapter 6, last week, it was all capped off with a Passover, just like Exodus. Now this week, that brings us to chapter 7, we reach a turning point in the book. Ezra himself turns up. We can't really blame him for not being in the story so far, Chapters 1 to 6 are about 60 years before chapter 7. There's a bit of a leap. So Ezra probably wasn't even born for the first half of the book that has his name. So in this chapter, we reach this turning point from Israel coming back into the land to now turning to how they should live in the land. So that recaps the last six chapters in the last few weeks. John's going to read Ezra chapter 7 for us now. Please do find Ezra 7 in your Bibles. If you have a Bible that resembles the church one, it's on page 478. It's basically midway through the first half of the Bible. Ezra chapter 7. After... the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zerahariah, the son of Uzai, the son of Bukai, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given the king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He'd begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. <clears throat> 
And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the peoples and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold, in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God. And anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasurers of trans-Euphrates are to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of God of heaven, may ask of you up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at the house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Thank you, John. Uh, Let me pray again quickly before uh, we get into preaching God's Word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Matt, over the last several weeks, has drawn our attention to this pattern that keeps happening in this book of Ezra. God moves to rescue his people, 
and then his people move in a grateful response to what God's done. And this chapter, it nurses that same pattern, you'll be glad to hear, but from a, a slightly different angle. It shows us that God's movement towards his people, towards us, means giving us rest. And our movement towards him is one of worship, both in our gathered worship and what we'll call later on our scattered worship. That's what we're going to look at this morning, the gift of rest and the call to worship. First, let's think about the gift of rest, which we've already been talking about this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 to 10, where Ezra enters the story and is sent back to the land. Now, what do these verses have to do with rest? We talked about it this morning, but the word's not mentioned here. But if we're attentive to the details, which you have to be in these long and slightly dull Old Testament passages, we'll see that this passage is signaling to us that God gives rest. Rest from exile, rest from our burdens, rest from our old life. So, remember, Ezra replays the story of the Exodus. God's brought his people out of the land and into a new land. And this is often described in the Old Testament as giving them rest. Think about the Exodus story. They're in slavery. Then they wander the desert for 40 years. Finally, they get to the land. When they build the first temple, in 1 Kings 8, King Solomon says, Blessed be the Lord who has given, his, given rest to his people Israel. So rest means entering the land and building the temple. That is the sign that the journey's over. If getting into the land is like getting home from a long journey, then building the temple is like putting your feet up. And that's what's happened so far in Ezra. We're back in the land and the temple's been built. And so these first 10 verses are underlining God has given his people rest. Now, how are they doing that? Well, it's emphasized by a repeated use of the number seven. The number seven is the number of rest in the Bible. God rests from his work on the seventh day. God's people rest from their work on the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath. Chapter three, when they first built the altar again, took place in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, which was a rest month, a Sabbath month. It's when they had all the festivals, the Feast of Booths we saw them celebrate, which is all about wandering in the wilderness and then having rest. So we're told in verse 7 and 8 twice, this happens in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. The seventh year is important in Israel as well. In the Jewish calendar, the seventh year was a rest year. The debts are forgiven. The land is given a year off from being farmed. This is like a Sabbath year under King Artaxerxes. God's used him to give the people rest. Numbers are so important in interpreting the Bible. This isn't reading too much into it when we, when we know the context, especially with everything that's happened in Ezra so far. These little things are underlining God has given rest. He's given Sabbath to his people. No more exile. Even the way that Ezra himself enters the story, signals to us God is given, giving rest. Now, Ezra, he's a priest. He's from the tribe of Levi. We're given his family tree in verses 1 to 6. He's a son of Aaron, no less, the original high priest. So Ezra is eligible for the top jobs. But verse 6, notice we're told he's a teacher, well-versed in the law. So 
he's not a priest who went around offering sacrifices, but one who would teach the people to obey the law. And Ezra himself is a sign of God's rest. Numbers are important in this passage, but so are dates. Look at verses 8 and 9. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He'd begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. So Ezra arrives in Jerusalem, finishes his journey the first day of the fifth month of the Jewish calendar. That's about August in our time. And dates in the Bible, sometimes they're there for reference, but they also mean things. They tell us about God and about Jesus. If two events happen on the same date, the Bible wants us to connect them usually. And the only other thing I can find in the Old Testament that happens on the first of the fifth in the Jewish calendar is the death of Aaron, Ezra's ancestor, Numbers 33, 38, if you want to uh, check it out yourself. Now, Aaron, despite being the great high priest, the first high priest, he was not allowed into the land. He was part of the rebellious generation who didn't obtain what, we're told often in the Old Testament, rest. Aaron was a great high priest, but he could not bring rest. But on the same day that he dies, his ancestor comes as a new Aaron who does enter the land and does get rest. He achieves a rest his forefather never did. A new era, a new rest, a fresh start is dawning for God's people with a new priesthood to come with it. God is giving Sabbath. He's giving rest. Now, gone through the weeds of the detail. Do you think of God as a rest giver? If you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, do you think of God as something which brings rest into people's lives and peace? Or is it more trouble than it's worth? Well, to us Christians, does God not often seem more like a burden giver? Especially at the minute, you know, in the context of lockdown life, barely able to leave the house, doesn't God expect me to do my own Bible time in the morning and maybe a family Bible time or a spouse Bible time and he wants me to work well from home as much as if I was at the office and I've got to get to life group on Zoom, all of this without being able to leave the house. He wants me to schlep to church on Sunday where I can't talk to anyone or sing and I have to wear a mask. Lockdown life is restless. It's always winter, never Christmas. It's always busy but never productive or never busy yet never restful. And we think if we drop the juggling balls of life right now, well, we must be seeing, and, and God is displeased with us. Wrong. God is a rest giver, not a burden giver. He gives us rest from depending on our productivity, rest from working for his approval, rest from looking around for something that's going to satisfy us. The past year has probably exposed a restlessness in our hearts. You know, when the things that you treasured, that gave your life value and order, were stripped away very swiftly a year ago, what were you like inside? What was left? That you were somewhat restless. Well, God gives us rest. How does he give us rest? Well, a spoiler alert, it's not through Ezra. Ezra, the new Aaron was as unsuccessful as the first Aaron. The people stayed disobedient. They preferred the restlessness of their own sin. 
But God, in his mercy, he sends someone greater than Aaron, greater than the second Aaron, Ezra, a perfect high priest who does bring us perfect rest, Jesus. We have a rest far greater than what Israel had. They had a land, but that was temporary. They lost it once. They lost it again. But we have a rest that Jesus has given us through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension that can never be taken away. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that in the New Testament, in Hebrews 4. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following Israel's example of disobedience. There's a rest available to us, a Sabbath rest, not tied to one day or one month or one year. For the Christian, every day is a Sabbath day, a Sabbath month, a Sabbath year, because God has given us an eternal rest from our works, from our burdens, from our worries, from our wanderings. And he gives it to us in Jesus. God is the rest giver. If you feel like you've wandered from that rest, you can return to it again this morning by repenting and praying and asking for the Lord to restore you to his rest. If you've never asked God to give you rest before, why not ask for the first time today? God is the rest giver. That's what these verses, obscure as they are, full of Old Testament detail, that's what these verses tell us. God is the rest giver. Once we've received the gift of rest, we are called then to worship. And that's the second thing we're going to look at. We've had the gift of rest, and then the rest of the passage is a call to worship. So, Ezra, the rest giver, arrives. He's sent by the, uh, the king, Artaxerxes. And most of chapter 7 is a letter from Artaxerxes telling Ezra what he's meant to do. Ezra's whole mission is summed up in sort of verses 12 to 16. In verse 13, we're told Ezra, along with any Jews who want to go with him, because they didn't all go at once, can go back to the land. And they're sent to do two things. First, verse 14, to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of his God. Remember, Ezra is a teacher, an expert in the law. After years in exile, the people, they've forgotten how to live under the law. So Ezra is going to teach them. First thing, teach them the law. Second thing, verse 15, Ezra is to take with him the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel. And that is for use in the temple. They're going to decorate the temple, make it beautiful again. So God's given his people rest. Ezra is sent to help them worship both in gathered worship in the temple and in what we're going to call scattered worship, when they leave the temple and go off back to their daily lives in the rest of the land. Both of those things, gathered and scattered, are responses to God giving his people rest. So let's think about each of them. We'll think about gathered worship first as a response to God. We're going to verses 17 to 24. So, Story so far, again, let's keep reminding ourselves, the Jews have got worship up and running in a basic way. Chapter 3, they rebuilt the altar, and that was the essential thing, the first thing. Re-establishing the altar meant 
re-establishing forgiveness for your sins, re-establishing fellowship with God in the sacrifices. But forgiveness of sin and atoning sacrifice, that is not all the temple was about. It was also about worshipping God in a beautiful and a glorious way. So Ezra is sent with these great riches, with access to the royal purse strings, in verse 27, to bring honour to the house of the Lord. Or if you're reading it out of the ESV, to beautify the house of the Lord. So in verse 17, Artaxerxes, he expects Ezra to have a great celebration of sacrifices. And not just with the burnt offerings of animal sacrifice that we had back in chapter 3, but along with their grain offerings and drink offerings, Artaxerxes says. What's the big deal about grain offerings and drink offerings? This is another sign God's given rest. In the wilderness, in Exodus, grain offerings and drink offerings weren't offered with the animal sacrifices. They were only to be offered once you had rest in the land. Because they make the sacrifice about more than just forgiveness. They turn it into a feast with God, a celebration with God, a giving to God of the work of their own hands. So worship becomes not just about forgiveness, but about enjoying and beautifying God. Ezra's men start doing that now. Verse 18 to 20, he's told he can enrich it further um, by doing whatever he likes with the remaining gold and silver. Uh, He's going to make the temple a glorious, beautiful place of riches, and he can have access to the royal treasury to do whatever he needs to do. Why does Artaxerxes tell him to do that? Verse 23, Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? Artaxerxes even gets that it would be a fearful thing to worship God in a way less than what God has instructed. Now, we obviously don't worship God in a temple like Ezra did. We don't offer sacrifices. Yet even now, in the new covenant, God calls us to gathered worship. And the New Testament is is full of instructions on how we're to worship God when we gather. They might not be as exhaustive as the Old Testament, but they're there. They're often actually more detailed than we give them credit for. How are we told to worship when we gather? We gather on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread, to prayer. We devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture and its teaching. We baptize. We're told to celebrate the Lord's uh, table with bread and wine. We're told to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And like Israel, we do those things, not because we brought ourselves here, but because God brought us here. He is giving us rest by bringing us here this morning. Remember that at the minute when our worship is not what it should be on a Sunday. It doesn't seem very restful with no fellowship to be had, no songs to be sung, lots of us watching from home. But this is rooted in rest right now. We're here because God put us here. This is a sign that God gives rest. But we should be challenged as well as comforted by what Ezra does here. His mission is to honour, to beautify the house of the Lord, to give it attention. Verse 23, Artaxerxes says, what Ezra does for worship should be done with diligence 
Worship is about more than that moment of forgiveness at the altar, but diligence in what comes after. Is that the attitude that we bring to our gathered worship? Do we come to gathered worship with diligence? Now, that, even the thought of that can be very hard right now. I struggle at home most weeks to engage with the live stream because I'm usually chasing a toddler or have a baby strapped to my chest. We struggle to engage here because we can't sing and we can't even join in with reading the Bible out loud at the minute. It's fine that it's difficult because it's not how it's meant to be. But do, do our hearts come as prepared as they can be to give thanks, to rejoice, to pray, to listen with things as they are? We might ask ourselves, by taking worship away from us for the past year, is God giving us the chance to consider whether we were honoring the house of the Lord before the pandemic began? We've not sung in almost a year. But were we singing up for the encouragement of those around us, even if you're tone deaf, before God took singing away? You want to know strange, the strange things you miss in lockdown? strange thing I've missed is the sound of Gareth Edwards singing. Because it's terrible. But it's loud. And he does it with diligence. I can mention this now because it will be weeks before we can sing again and you'll have forgotten about it by then. Plenty of us men will sing loudly on the terraces on a Saturday but barely raise our voices when we come to worship God on a Sunday morning. And now the Lord has taken both of those away. We've only been able to take the Lord's table twice this past year. But even before COVID hit, did we come to the Lord's table with joy and celebration to participate in the, the body and blood of Christ? How many of us would have even noticed if we had just stopped doing the Lord's table for a year anyway? COVID or not? Do we come to gathered worship with diligence? Now, of course, for some of us, even getting to church on a Sunday is an achievement. Anxiety, social anxiety, depression, struggles with church itself, dealing with the kids, all of these mean the idea sometimes of coming and in a normal time singing with gusto or getting stuck in with people is incredibly hard. And let me tell you, that is okay. Your presence here on the days when you're broken and anxious, that is what beautifies the house of the Lord on those days. You are wanted here on those days. You bless us and you bless God by coming on the days where you are too weak to sing or to pray. Those are the days where, in normal circumstances, we sing or pray for you. Your presence on those days is your diligence, is you beautifying the house of the Lord. But for many of us, coming to church is no great struggle. But do we come with diligence? Do we come to beautify God's house, not to earn his approval? We've been given that already in the rest that Jesus gives. So we respond with gathered worship. It should be marked by diligence and beauty. Sometimes that consists simply of being able to get here when we're weak or broken or depressed. 
Right now, for most of us, it will consist of bringing the most attentive heart and mind that we can to things as they are. But when we are through this, it will call the attention of our minds, the strength of our bodies, the sound of our voices as we sing and say Amen. When we return to worship as normal, as Ezra did here after the exile, when it had been taken away for a while, let's hear this call to respond with diligence in our gathered worship. Ezra goes to establish gathered worship. He also goes to establish scattered worship. We'll look at that more briefly in the last couple of verses, verse 25 to 26. So gathered worship isn't the only focus. Ezra's sent to inquire about the law of his gods. He's to appoint, we're told in verse 25, 26, judges and magistrates, people who are going to make sure that the law is followed in people's everyday lives. And it's not just to be enforced, Ezra is to go and teach it as well. Again, I've said the people would have forgotten how to live under the law after so long in exile. But the average Israelite is expected to, to know, understand, and apply God's words. And those who don't, King Artaxerxes says, will be punished accordingly. Worship extends to all of life, not just the temple. You get that if you look at Leviticus. It's not just about what happens in the temple. It's about... Uh, what happens in business, what happens at home, about uh, bodily fluids of all things. God's worship extends to all of life. And so much more for us now. Like Israel, we're called to gathered worship, but we're also called to worship as we scatter from here at the end of the service for the rest of the week. We don't offer sacrifices in the temple Rather, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices every day. We read and study the scriptures to know God's word so we can know Jesus better and how to worship him. Just like Israel, we're called to worship as we scatter out of this gathering. But there are important differences between Israel's day-to-day scattered worship and ours. Israel's was under the law of Moses. We're told again and again here. And that was a law we know they could never keep. We'll see in the coming chapters, Ezra is unsuccessful. He comes like a new Moses as well, doesn't he? After this new exodus, to teach the law. But Ezra has, has his golden calf moment when he realizes just how bad the situation is. The law of Moses, it doesn't solve the root problem of the people's sinful hearts. They keep breaking the law. They keep falling under that punishment outlined in verse 26. Death, banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. That was the law that Israel lived under. But we don't live under that law anymore. There's an even newer Moses sent by God. He's the new Aaron. He's the new Moses. He's the new everything. Jesus. And he brings the solution to the problem of our sinful hearts that the law couldn't solve. The gospel. The law tells us what God needs us to do to be holy. The gospel tells us what God has already done to make us holy. It's the good news that Jesus kept this law perfectly. But he took all those penalties for breaking it in verse 26. that You and I deserve because we break the law. Jesus suffered death on a cross. Banishment, 
when he was forsaken by God. Property confiscated as soldiers drew lots for his clothes. Imprisonment by the Jews, the Romans, and eventually in the grave. But rising from the dead, he makes a new life for us possible. He doesn't give us the law to tell us to obey, but the Holy Spirit to help us obey. And so obedience doesn't come from being drawn to this commandment outside of us, but from God rewiring us on the inside by his Spirit. Gospel gives us the power to obey, and it gives us the grace when we fail. I was reminded, thinking about this, of a short poem that used to be quoted in this pulpit quite often by an American preacher, some of us may remember. Uh, It illustrates the difference between living by law and living by gospel. Uh, These lines are falsely attributed to John Bunyan. I'm sad to say never wrote them. Um, But it's the kind of thing he would have said. What's the difference between obeying under the law and obeying under the gospel? Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That's what we do as we scatter from here to go and worship. The gospel bids us fly and gives us the wings to do it. Jesus has given us perfect rest. So he helps us to obey him. And he gives us grace when we fail. Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses, but his people couldn't obey and were crushed by it. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses, and his people are empowered to obey, and we're lifted up when we fall. Christians, remember that as we scatter from here to go and worship God in the ins and outs of lockdown life. We worship God in the power and the grace of the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, let me ask you, how does that gospel sound? The news that even if you fall short of God's, he's done everything necessary to bring you near. That he forgives you even when you fall far, far short of him. If that intrigues you, if that pulls you in, why not respond? Why not ask for some of that rest from all of your failed attempts to live life well. God gives us rest. And that rest calls us to worship with diligence when we gather and in the power of the gospel when we scatter. We're going to sing now a song of response to what Jesus has done for us as we offer up our lives as living sacrifices.